You're listening to Talking Freely, where we discuss culture, politics, and religious freedom. Talking Freely is a podcast from Freedom for Faith, a Christian legal think tank that exists to protect and promote religious freedom in Australia. Welcome to Talking Freely. My name is Rowan McHugh. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Cole, who is a scholar, writer, translator, commentator, lecturer, and speaker specializing in political theology, which is the intersection between religion and politics. He is assistant director of the Center for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University in Canberra and host of the Political Animals podcast, honest conversations about the political and cultural ideas that shape who we are in the 21st century. Dr. Cole, welcome to Talking Freely. Great to be with you, Rowan. For those that are unfamiliar with the discipline of political theology, can you provide a brief summary of the kinds of issues it deals with and how it relates to average religious Australians today? Sure, Rowan. It's a very complex question. It should be straightforward, but unfortunately it's not. It's not. And that's because political theology desig- designates actually multiple discourses which don't always intersect with each other. And so it's worth just setting, doing a bit of topography at the start before diving into what I call or consider Christian political theology. So political theology, the first distinction to really make is between religious political theology and what I characterize as secular political theology, which sounds a bit strange, but this discipline or notion, to the extent that it is a discipline, actually begins... (laughs) in the secular field. And it goes back to a legal theorist by the name of Carl Schmitt uh, in Germany, who was infamously a Nazi sympathizer. And he has a complicated legacy, but he wrote a book called Political Theology in German all the way back in 1922. But there's not a lot of theology in that book. Uh, It's really a theory of sovereignty and deals with power. But that spawned an entire literature that continues today. In fact, he's had his reputation has had a bit of a rehabilitation and he's become very, very popular. And so loads of books have been written about Carl Schmitt's political theology. And the reason I call that secular political theology is that most of the people working on Schmitt are not religious people. Many of them are actually atheists. And some of the most famous Atheist European philosophers, for example, contemporary philosophers like the Italian Giorgio Agamben and the <laughs> enigmatic Slovenian philosopher, use that term loosely, Slavoj Žižek, uh, they're both, they've both done a lot of work on Carl Schmitt. So there's this entire literature going on, which is really an, a hundred-year-old conversation <laughs> about this one book or this one concept that Carl Schmitt introduced in the 19th 20s. Then in the late 1960s, in a way that's quite disconnected from this literature on Carl Schmitt, we get theologians, again German, funnily enough, we get um, Johannes B. Metz, the Catholic theologian, who in 1968 writes really the first work in English. It's a journal article based on a lecture he gave somewhere in the US. I can't remember where it was. Uh, which uses this term political theology, but there's no reference to Carl Schmitt in there. And that's followed up in the early 70s by Jürgen Moltmann, uh, Dorothy Zöller, who's also a, a German theologian. And then soon after that, it spreads out of the Germans. You, you get someone like um, J. Diotis Roberts, who writes a book in 1974 called Black Political Theology. And at the same time, you've got liberation theology emerging in Latin America, You've got the Anabaptist uh, theologian and um, uh, scholar who's um, having a mental blank, uh, blank on his name, John Howard Yoder, who I think in 1972 writes the really influential book, The Politics of Jesus. And none of that literature <laughs> really even mentions Carl Schmitt. And it comes in with a very different um, approach to political theology, but this is the confusing thing, it's using the same language. And so really from the late 60s and early 70s, we have two distinct separate discourses, both called political theology, but one's really a kind of secular philosophy, theory of law, and it's focused on sovereignty. The other one, and this brings us to the sort of, I stand in this tradition, the Christian political 
theology tradition is really about trying to work out the political implications of the Jesus event and then flowing from that, what are the political implications of the gospel? What are the political implications of the entire canon of scripture? What is the relationship and place of the church in the political world? How are Christians, fast forwarding to today, how are they to view the state, to view secular political authority? How are they to interact with the political authorities? How are they to operate as political actors, whether voters um, and politicians? And it's just worth noting as an aside that uh, the reason why I meant earlier characterized this in the initial distinction as between secular political theology and religious political theology is we have to recognize there is also Islamic political theology, Jewish political theology. So there are, there are all these different discourses. So there's the secular political theology with Schmidt. Then there are different religious political theologies and they don't also always interact with each other. So there's, there's barely a reference in Christian political theology to Islamic political theology or Jewish political theology. And just to muddy the waters further, one of the trends we've had in the last couple of decades is really a proliferation of what I would call denominational political theology. So now every single church has its own political theology. So you can read a book on Pentecostal political theology, Orthodox political theology, uh, evangelical political theology, Baptist political theology, Presbyterian. And then, of course, because there is no consensus within each of these traditions. So really what you have are discrete debates within each denomination. <laughs> and again, sometimes these internal debates operate in somewhat isolation from the, the wider uh, field. So to come full circle and actually answer the, the question, political theology really de denotes multiple discourses and or literatures, which are often quite separate and not well integrated, even though there's some conceptual uh, overlap. Personally, the way I think of Christian political theology, which is what I do, and, and I have to use that qualifier in order to make it clear which part of this uh, kaleidoscope I I am situated in, uh, I think it really asks two very simple and related questions. And I think of it a bit like a highway. And you could, there, are, there are lanes going in both directions. So it asks on the one hand, what are the ways in which Christian theology has shaped politics, both actual politics, which I guess is a historical question. In what way has theology shaped the kind of institutions we find, say, in a Western liberal democracy like Australia? In what way does uh, Christian theology shape the, the the political understandings and activities of Christians and churches that actually exist in a particular polity? And then the other lanes of the highway coming the other direction, which is often a question Christians don't ask, in some ways it's just as interesting, is in what ways does our political culture, context, institution and secular understandings actually shape our theology? So there are these two related questions that go in both directions. What are some of the examples there uh, of the influence that the culture around us uh, confers to the church in this political way that you're aware of that, or that you've investigated? I should just say that most of the literature is focused on the other direction, which is the way that, you know, what does the Bible tell us about politics today or so this question actually is, is not asked as much as it, it should be. And it's one I'm trying to explore, but it's kind of difficult because I'm out on my own a little bit. I think um, some, possible, some possibilities for the way that secular political culture shapes um, Christian politics. Well, I guess, the easy, I guess the most obvious way, uh, I guess the most obvious example, or the most manifest evident example to my mind, is that both progressive and conservative secular political philosophies slash ideologies uh, repurposed in or redressed in Christian garb. So when you look, for example, at the Christian conservative position, say on climate change or on the economy, it often is indistinguishable from conservative atheists, which tells you, which is a good clue that the might, these, these views might not be shaped 
specifically by theology. I guess you could always argue that the atheists are somehow influenced by Christian theology, although I think the, inf the direction of the influence in 2021, quite frankly, is more likely to be the other way, given the diminished um, general cultural influence of Christianity. And again, on the progressive side, it's, it's the same thing. So when you look at the progressive view of the economy or tax, or say on migration, again, it looks indistinguishable often from the policy positions that self-professed atheist progressives have. And again, that's a clue, or at least raises the prospect that these views aren't necessarily driven by theology or of a reading of the Bible. Now, that's not to say that in both cases, um, biblical and or theological rationales can't be found, including compelling ones sometimes for it, for those policy positions. But my, my sense is um, if you ask the question, where are these Christians getting these political views from, quite frankly, it's un unlikely that they're getting a um, progressive tax system from a reading of John's gospel. And it's also unlikely that they're, they're getting a sort of um, offshore detention policy from Mark's gospel, because the Bible just doesn't even speak to a lot of these contemporary um, political proposals. I guess the fundamental um, issue that people, Christians, need to recognise is that this influence runs both ways. And I think we, we have a kind of lopsided issue. Paradoxically, I, don't, I think this, you'll find this on the left and right, across the divide within contemporary Christian um, politics. I don't think any side's really in doubt that historically Christianity has had a monumental impact on the shape of Western political history. I think everyone has an intuition, a sound intuition that our institutions and our polities, even our culture, have to some extent, greater or lesser, been influenced, at least historically, by Christianity. And I think most Christians would acknowledge that that influence is diminishing and contemporary Western liberal democracies are evolving in ways that move away from uh, Christianity. But we are all political animals, not in the Aristotelian sense, because political animal in Aristotle's politics just means a polis animal, that is someone that lives in a polis as defined and understood in the Greek context. But what I mean by saying about political animals is that whatever your theology, we all begin life in a political context. So we don't learn politics like some alien species looking, some alien species that has no politics, that looks at this kind of human politics. You and I, Rowan, we learnt politics by living in Australia. That is our political context. And for good or ill, it has shaped <laughs> our entire understanding of the uh, political world. Now, a lot of that context today is not Christian. So I, when I say the fundamental point, a kind of starting point, a stable kind of constant in this that Christians have to grapple with is that we are going to be influenced by our, our now secular political context and culture one way or another. I'm not saying whether it's, it's necessarily all good or all bad, and that's not to prescribe what the response needs to be. But the reality is, as Christians, and we feel this more in Australia than perhaps Americans do, we are a minority, an absolute minority, at least church-going uh, Christians. And so you know, we are shaped and we have to act <laughs> as citizens in this secular polity. At Freedom for Faith, we've just had our Religious Freedom Weekend, which we hope was uh, something that encouraged religious Australians to speak with their local member of parliament and put the issue of religious freedom on their radar. From the standpoint of political theology, how do you understand the idea of religious freedom? And how would you educate Christians who are trying to understand their own part in protecting it? The way I view religious freedom is in a larger context of freedoms. And that comes from an understanding of freedoms as if you like a package deal. So 
I think to be truly free, which you do need in order to flourish, you need a certain degree of freedom. I mean, we, we know that, you know, what's the opposite of freedom? Slavery. We know that that does not lead to human <laughs> flourishing. And from a Christian point of view, that's kind of a um, really an offense against humans being made in the image of God. God is not a slave. So freedom has to be part of the a prospering, flourishing humanity. If I can <laughs> sound a bit left-wing there. Uh, so the point that I think our secular society hasn't quite comprehended is you can't pick and choose your freedoms. You can't have economic freedom. You can't have free speech. You can't have freedom of assembly, freedom of conscience, freedom of mobility, and then not let religious people be free to talk publicly about their faith, to start and operate churches, and to live according to their religious faith publicly, because that will then undermine all the other freedoms. Freedoms are only as strong <laughs> as their collective weight. So that's the first point I would make. And I do find our current cultural climate concerning for the fact that it does not seem to appreciate that religious freedom, whether you are religious or not, is one of the fundamental freedoms as part of this package that are necessary. Whether you need to exercise your religious freedom or not, it's a necessary part of the collection of freedoms that are required for a healthy, prosperous, sustainable uh, society. There seems to be this idea that it's this, it's not a genuine freedom. It's this, it's a license to bigotry that certain Christians want to sneak into this collection of freedoms under the guise of real freedoms. I think this is actually a very dangerous kind of thinking because once you lose one of these freedoms, the others are going to be undermined. So if you're going to stop religious people from speaking, then how can you defend free speech? Actually, you've undermined free speech right there. And so it's a small step then to simply police and censor all speech. I mean, if you're going to stop Christians from, for example, saying that they believe in a traditional view of marriage between one woman and one man, well, that's not just freedom of religion. It's freedom of conscience. That's freedom of speech. Pretty quickly, it'll be freedom of assembly because you might want to stop Christians congregating to discuss this matter uh, or what have you. Now, the, the second thing I would say, and again, I, I caveat this in a way that will probably undermine everything I say by saying I'm not an expert in this. And so I'm not, I don't have the kind of expertise in the law and uh, I would defer to you, Rowan, you, you would have a lot more expertise than me. I'll just make one layman's observation if I may, about our current situation. And that it seems to me that at the moment, uh, freedom of religion is under threat at the social level more than the political level. What I mean by that is that um, there aren't any serious moves as far as I can see it to legislate or to introduce a legislative, legislative regime that would sort of rule out or criminalize um, Christian free, free, uh, freedom of religion. With the one exception, which could be the pointy end, edge of the wedge, which is the conversion therapy bill in Victoria and the ACT, although I understand the Victorian one is more egregious than the ACT one. So just set that aside, that that's a kind of, that's a question about the future and what that signifies about the future. But if we look at the major cases of, if you like, um, people suffering Christians, or it seems to be mostly Christians in, in Australia, but it could be any religious tradition, uh, suffering some kind of adverse tangible effect on their life as a consequence of usually talking freely about their faith. Israel Falau's the most obvious example here. It seems that the pressure on this kind of speech is coming from the public, not the government. And it's, it's, it's coming from the bottom up. And so really you say something on social media, it's actually your peers that tear you apart. They might be activists, but it's not government institutions. And the corporate sector seems to be way ahead of the government. 
Now, the problem in a democracy is that the social changes always manifest downstream at the political level because you only hold elections every three years. You have a lot of safe seats. It's not like you clean out the parliament every every three years or what Congress is sort of uh, having elections every two years. And so what is concerning <laughs> is that the social attitudes, the broad popular attitudes towards religious freedom, this kind of intersects with my earlier point about this idea that it's not a real, it's not part of the, the legitimate collection of freedoms. That social attitude has changed and Christians are increasingly feeling the pressure, but it's a kind of peer pressure, peer pressure, and it is manifesting in corporate decisions, although I suspect the causal effect here is that the employees are putting pressure above, and we've, we've seen some very high-profile cases. Um, this goes more into general cancel culture, where it's the employees, often the young employees, put massive pressure on management. <laughs> to make certain hiring and firing uh, decisions or certain decisions of association because they can't, uh, they can't suffer to work in a place that doesn't accord with their ideological views 100%. So at the moment, I actually think the bulwark, the last line of defence, is actually our parliaments because they are the ones that can actually change the law and they could potentially have the greatest impact on religious... Uh, freedom thus far the regime i think is okay for christians at the legislative level again with the very dishonorable exception of the victorian conversion therapy legislation although i would note that 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 is about a very specific issue and the criminalization of prayer clearly is a shocking and uh a shocking legal development that should worry all Christians, whatever you think about conversion therapy, the idea that you could turn an act of praying into a crime is deeply, deeply conserving. But I guess what I'm doing is just mapping out what the landscape seems to be at the moment. And there's, a, there's plenty of cause for concern. But as a future intelligence analyst that had the arduous but very uh, beneficial experience of trying to look into the future <laughs> at the way strategic the um you know the international threats and risks are going to develop you have to be very cautious about trends because trends lull you into a false sense of security a trend is a trend until it stops being a trend and so it's very difficult when you see these long-term trends and of course that gives you a confidence in the very immediate short term that the trend will continue. But trends do reverse and cease because once you get out beyond really four to five years, you're playing a guessing game. So my, my assessment, looking at this like a, um, an intelligence analyst, is the trends are bad. There's definitely been a massive societal um, shift. There's cause to be concerned, which is why I think there's a there's a need for organisations like Freedom for Faith, because there's a massive task there to both educate the general public about the sort of benefits of uh, freedom of religion and its importance, even to the non-religious. Uh, and there's a need actually to um, help defend. Christians and people of other other faiths in sort of very specific circumstances once they they come under assault, often quite unjustly and born of all kinds of ignorance. But that doesn't mean we should succumb to a kind of thinking that says, this is my personal view, that you and I, Rowan, will be in prison within 10 to 20 years. That can't be ruled out. But just because that that is not the inevitable 20-year uh, endpoint of the kind of trends we see, not least because there are organisations like Freedom for Faith and other organisations, there's mobilisation, there's always um, pushback. So unless, unless, we, unless Christians want to undermine their own cause and with a defeatist mindset, I think 
there's a need for some kind of opt optimism. If you don't believe this is a, a trend that can be turned around, then there's no point actually fighting, is there? And so I am not optimistic, but I'm, what's the word? I, I'm hopeful. <laughs> and I, I, see, I see there being a um, benefit in fighting because I don't think the trend, I don't think the final point of this trend is set in stone yet. Just on those trends you've described there, a common complaint about religious freedom in our time is that it unfairly imposes religious beliefs on others who have no religion, potentially. Um, how can you contextualize that sort of thinking for us? And what are your thoughts about this concern? I find that a strange, <laughs> as, as a practicing Christian, I find that, that uh, view almost incomprehensible. Now that said, if that is the view people have, then they have it for a reason. So you have to then explore the question of why they have it. The reason I say I find it incomprehensible is that in our context in Australia, we don't know exactly, but the best guess is somewhere between eight and 12% of Australians attend church regularly, depending how you identify regularly. I think just over 50% of people in the census, census will tick the box that they're Christian, although that rate is declining quite rapidly. Um, the, the way our, the state of our current culture is not what I would call Christian friendly. <laughs> As we've seen, with, we've just seen a high profile footballer, um, you know, sacked for, uh, posting more or less texts that you can find in the Bible and the view commonly held by a lot of Christians in a code where, you know, other players <laughs> can uh, beat people up in nightclubs, punch their wife in the face, um, <laughs> be charged with rape and get off, and they're, they're all allowed to play. So that, that's a very striking example of a view that Christianity... There's something kind of uniquely threatening about it in a way that sort of, you know, being drunk and disorderly, drunk and drunk and disorderly is not. So the idea that there's this risk, this threat of Christians imposing their, <laughs> their view on non-Christian Australia is kind of strange, although I guess it feeds into the inflated threat perception that, um, certainly our secular elites um, seem to have, but which seems really, really strange if you are a Christian, because here we have a massive discord. So if you're a church-going Christian, you feel like you're under threat. You feel like <laughs> you ask these kind of questions. You know, people, a lot of Christians seriously ask, am I, could I be, end up in prison in 20, 30 years in Australia? There's a lot of self-censorship. Oh, can I post this on social media? You know, what if my employer finds out that I, I didn't vote for same-sex marriage? There's this massive threat perception, I would say, and maybe we have to distinguish between conservative and more liberal forms of Christianity. Certainly we, for conservative Christians, I would go so far as to say there's this kind of siege mentality that this is massive secular um, sort of a tsunami heading towards the church and they've circled the wagons and they're going to hang on for dear life just to survive. And yet <laughs> the larger secular society sees this tiny little rump hanging on for survival as some kind of uh, unique threat to the tolerant plural, uh, you know, lovey-dovey society that it wants to have. Now they can't both be, be right. And I don't actually, to be honest, I, I can't explain what I would regard as the irrational fear, particularly of Christianity, because it's not like Islam is really the key threat. Islam gets, <laughs> I mean, the paradox here is there is actually a genuine security threat that comes from within the Islam community that doesn't come from any other religion in Australia. And yet Islam, the right to be a Muslim actually will be defended by some secular elites and they regard Christianity as the major threat. I actually had a um, really 
surprising moment in my intelligence career. And for the benefit of listeners, I, I worked on ISMUS terrorism. And we had a conference in Canberra that actually was um, organized, and it was to discuss political Islam. And a relatively senior American intelligence official, as we were having the sort of uh, first evening dinner drinks, get to know you type thing. So we, he's come all the way to Australia for this conference looking at political Islam. This was, in, this was in the context of the Arab Spring. It was like 12 months into the Arab Spring. And he just said to me in casual conversation, actually, I'm not, not what I'm really worried about are Christians, Christian fundamentalists, that that's the real threat, not political Islam. Now, I guess that makes a little bit, that's not something you could say with a straight face in Australia. And I guess, you know, in America, the threat picture is more complicated, but I found, found that an astonishing um, thing to say for someone who <laughs> is working in American intelligence on Islamist terrorism. And we're at a conference on political Islam and this guy's worried about Christianity. Uh, so I don't, I'm not sure yet. And I haven't come across someone who can provide what I regard as a really cogent explanation of why secular society at the height of its power, at the, at the moment when it's pushed, at least in Australia, Christianity to the very margins of its political life, there's all this angst and fear about the political power of Christianity. I guess in the Australian context, the fact that we have a Pentecostal prime minister is unnerving perhaps for secular society because they don't know much about Pentecostalism. They think it has strange and uh, weird beliefs but beyond that it's kind of it's kind of perplexing the baptist reverend tim costello recently wrote a piece for eternity news that explored concerns he had about any kind of religious discrimination bill being introduced to australia he raised the point that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church that sort of ancient notion and that Christianity flourishes where there's more persecution. How would you engage with that perspective, particularly in light of the fact that it seems to indicate that it's better for the church if we have less religious freedom protections rather than stable ones or or more protections? There is certainly a view. Um, I can't say how prevalent it is, but you find it in most of the major traditions perhaps more Protestantism than Catholicism and Orthodoxy, which really thinks it was a mistake for the church to get in bed with political power or the way it got in bed with political power um, was a mistake. And I've, I've met people um, or I know people who actually think it's a good thing that Christianity is declining in Australia because A, it'll get rid of all the pretenders And you know what? If 1% of Australians are genuine Christians, then better to make that transparent in their view. They don't want all the sort of uh, once every, I don't know how long they do the census, but let's call them census Christians (laughs) who tick the box for Christianity and and nothing else. And there there are some who think that persecution, genuine persecution, not just losing jobs, but, you know, something stronger, and more harmful than that would actually be a healthy thing for Christian, for the church, because again, it would sort the men from the boys and the women from the, the girls. And of course, there's a historical tradition of martyrdom that they can point to and that they can build this kind of political theology. And I would call it a political theology because there's a kind of view of the relationship between the church and state in contemporary Western liberal democracies. And there is, to be fair, some scholarship by the likes of sociologists of religion like Rodney Stark that do suggest that um, where Christianity or religions in general, when there is persecution, it can be good for the bottom line of the church in terms of it, it does mean you, you end up with a core of very convicted, strong Uh, believers. He points to the Soviet Union and the former Soviet republics. And I think basically his argument would be that once communism retreated or, or disappeared, those Christians that survived were kind of like a powerhouse because 
these people were the real deal. But those that had survived Christians under all that persecution, once they were free, you know, they evangelized, they, they grew, and the church came out much stronger than the kind of insipid Christianity that passes in the wealthy, lazy, prosperous West. We don't, until recently, haven't had to really try hard to be a um, Christian. So the idea is in a society that is Christian, I guess it's to use a political science term, it's a kind of freeloading problem. So there's not a lot, where there's not a lot, a lot of cost to be a Christian. You know, you can tick the box and you can get away with being a Christian. When there's real cost associated, <laughs> only the genuine believers will survive. And there is a, there's a certain school of thought that that is actually what the church needs. And that would be a kind of return to the first three centuries of Christianity because the underlying thesis here is that that persecution actually helped the early church in its earlier phase. That, that said, I think there are some fundamental problems with the assumptions here because just because the church survived and maybe thrived, if that's the right word, at least that it grew during those three centuries of um, persecution in the Greco-Roman world. It's uh, not to say it would have thrived for another thousand years afterwards. And let's face it, it its growth became turbocharged once it became legal. And the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, I don't, I don't for a moment dispute that all kinds of problems um, <laughs> came along with earthly power for the church. There are lots of dangers. And personally, I'm not in favour of returning to some kind of um, theocracy. Again, because I, I, am, I do actually believe in the set of liberal freedoms that I mentioned earlier. And, of course, the other side of religious freedom is the freedom to be an atheist, to be a Muslim, to be a Jew. As I say to young Christians that I teach sometimes, and I get them to write an essay about their ideal state, and it often comes out as a theocracy. And I just ask a simple question. If it's a Catholic theocracy, uh, what are my rights as a Protestant? What are you going to do with the hundreds of thousands of Muslims in Australia? And what happens to people who decide that they, they want to be an atheist? And usually, usually they, they struggle actually to answer that because it's not a liberal order that they're setting. So uh, I've said the same thing to um, people I've met who have flirted with the idea of censoring what imams can preach in mosques. And again, I'll just make the simple point. Well, if Christians advocate that, we're really cutting off our own leg because to a secular person, there's no difference between the threat you know, the, the crazy teachings you get in the mosque and a church. If you're gonna, once you cross that Rubicon of controlling what can be preached in the mosque, which is what a lot of Muslim countries do, incidentally, <laughs> uh, authoritarian ones, uh, like Turkey is a good example. Um, imams are not free to just say whatever they want at the Friday sermon in, in, in Turkey. Uh, so again, it's it's a collection of rights, and you've got to you've got to advocate it consistently. So, if churches are to be free to preach what they want, um, you know, short of inciting a revolution or violence or terrorism or or whatever, in church, then you have to accord that same freedom to Muslims. And again, I think some Christians lose this in the debate that you have to be free to be non-religious too. Otherwise, you're looking at some kind of authoritarian order, and that is coming back in fashion in some parts of the Christian, this kind of post-liberal uh, movement, which has lots of different subspecies, you know, integralism and a whole bunch of stuff. But it, it, it quickly falls into this mire of trying to sort out <laughs> the uneven rights because, again, it's got to go in all directions. So to get back to your you know, I've gone way off track, but, you know, there, there is, there is a, an authentic part of the Christian tradition. And again, I mentioned John Howard Yoder earlier, and I've remembered his name this time. He's only one of the most famous political theologians, although he never used that term himself as far as I'm aware. 
but right from the earliest church up, there is there is a tradition. You can see it in monasticism, the idea of you know turning your back on earthly power. It's a form of corruption, and so you create a more idyllic religious community where you can kind of transcend your human your human distractions and temptations and focus purely on God. So the most conservative Christians actually need to recognize that there is this part in the tradition. But of course, that's not the only part of the, the tradition. It's not the only tradition you will find in the Bible because you have very confronting passages that the kind of John Howard Yodas of the world can't really deal with very well, such as Romans 13, where <laughs> we're told to subject ourselves to the political authorities and that they all come from, from God. As one, the, the best thing I ever uh, read on that passage from an exegete was he said that what is offensive about that passage is how clear it is and the fact you can't, there's no way around it. <laughs> because a lot of a lot of christians today have a problem with power and, and authority and it's partly a historical legacy and again it's partly the influence of secular uh what i would call left-wing ideologies that uh, are very skeptical of power and think it's kind of intrinsically uh corrupt so that is an authentic part of the tradition but in my view it doesn't do full justice to the the full scope of what the Bible has to say about politics, which is quite complex, to be fair, because it's a complex canon with different voices, two testaments, spans a lot of history, deals with a lot of um, matters. And I think it it fails to, to transparently deal with the full consequences of what they're arguing. So just to harp on John Howard Yoder again, he has this concept of what he calls revolutionary subordination so christians are basically to shun power but they're to be subject to it so this is how he kind of squares the romans 13 um, exhortation so basically if the state wants to kill you will you go to your death honorably but basically you take no part in the government and by doing that you're effectively saying it has no um legitimacy well you know um Stanley Howarth, who comes out of that tradition, has this, the way he has evolved that idea is that the church, in order to really authentically be the church, needs to effectively stay out of politics. But of course, it's hard to be the church if you're being massacred, right? So I think what they fail to understand is that underpinning all of this kind of, this nice, if you like, martyrdom tradition is actually the underlying freedoms provided in the Western liberal polity. That is, they have the luxury of writing that view because at the end of the day, if you practice revolutionary subordination in Australia, it's pretty low cost. If you're a Christian in Iran, you know, do you wake up every morning praying for martyrdom <laughs> or do you pray that God's going to transform the country, <laughs> that you're going to get some freedoms and that your church can grow? So the perspective looks, looks very different. Anyway, I'm just starting to waffle on, so you bet you better uh, bring me back on course now. Given that your PhD was on Middle Eastern studies, what should Australians know about the uniqueness of religious freedom in the West? And what are your thoughts about migrants who have come here to escape persecution to discover a culture wavering in its support of these rights? It's a very interesting question. There's definitely a massive difference in the view of religious freedom in most Muslim majority countries and Western countries. So in some Muslim majority countries, um, if you can, if you leave Islam it can happen at, at great costs. Uh, Pakistan is a good example where I think apostasy is a, um, crime that carries the death penalty and people have been charged. I don't think the Pakistani uh, state has actually executed one of those death sentences, but people have taken a few of them into their own hands. Uh, the sad truth is that in some very conservative um, Muslim communities overseas, um, you're at real threat from being killed by your own family. If you convert to Christianity, um, for example, and, of course, there are all kinds of uh, legal restrictions on, say, building 
churches, repairing churches, <laughs> ringing the church bells in some cases. So religious freedom, you know, some, some of the most conservative Muslim majority countries, you know, Iran's a good example, have a very poor record or have some of the poorest records globally when it comes to religious freedom. The worst offenders aren't all Muslim countries, of course. You've got, you know, North Korea is not a fun place to be a Christian. Uh, China is not a great place to be any religion. Falun Gong, I'm not sure if that would technically be classified as, as a religion. But again, there are all kinds of challenges and pressures in being a Christian in that kind of authoritarian state. And so there, there's, a, there's a kind of irony here because when Muslims migrate from countries and communities that have the least religious freedom, they get to enjoy some of the greatest religious freedom in their new country. Now, as someone who actually supports religious freedom, I don't actually have a problem with that, purely for the fact that <laughs> it's not really religious freedom if it's just for Christianity. That's Christian freedom, not religious freedom. Uh, now, there's, you can, we can have a debate about whether we should have different rules for different religions, but that, to me, is starting to not look like a, a free society. In fact, that's starting to replicate just the other side of the coin of what happens in those very Muslim countries where Islam is favoured and other religions are not free. Now, that's not to say that doesn't come with costs, but then freedoms come with the cost, right? It doesn't matter what kind of freedom it is, people are free to misuse it. That's one of the, the fundamental facts of freedom. The alternative is some form of coercion where we control what you can do, what you can say for your own benefit. Every authoritarian regime on the planet, whether it was Stalin's Soviet Union or Adolf Hitler's Germany, do it for, I'm doing air quotes here, but no one can say that, do it for the benefit of their citizens. They all think they are the saviour of the nation and they're on the, on the righteous side. Jihadists think this. Jihadists don't think of themselves as nihilistic, vicious killers. They're people doing God's work with the aim of bringing about a more just and uh, prosperous society. So that's not to say that there aren't costs, but you have to the cost-benefit analysis here is to do with our fundamental freedoms. I guess you could have a debate about Muslim migration, although that ship, in my opinion, sailed long ago. Um, Muslims are a part of the Australian community, irrespective of what you think about that. And they have to, be, in my view, be accorded exactly the same uh, freedoms and duties as other citizens. And it's on the duty side where um, I think you can prosecute in a counterterrorism sense, uh, those would be Islamist terrorists um, with the full force of the law. I will, I will make one, I'll give you one anecdote though that is slightly different because we often forget that there are millions of Christians in the Middle East as well. And uh, a lot of our migrants in Australia actually are Arab Christians from Lebanon, Iraq, Egypt, and so forth. And I, I had occasion i was at a sort of conference type situation and i think it was the syrian orthodox archbishop of sydney uh, whose name escapes me and i don't know if he's still the archbishop there but uh, we were talking again this was at the height of the syrian um conflict and so he'd, he'd migrated from syria and i think he was asked by a, a christian church leader maybe an anglican or catholic or something like that about how the situation compared in Australia and living under Bashar al-Assad's Syria. And the, um, the answer was quite astounding because he said, oh, look, we had far more religious freedom in, in Syria because, uh, as you may know, Rowan, in the Orthodox Church, there are certain religious festivals that entail the whole congregation getting out of the church and walking around the, the streets. He said, oh, you know, in Australia, it's impossible to get a permit. It's like everything's so regulated. It's really hard for us to actually um, do the full uh, sort of liturgical uh, rites of our tradition. 
in uh, Syria, it's no problem. We're fully allowed to, to um, do all that. Now, of course, they wouldn't be allowed to do that if the jihadists won that, won that um, conflict. But it is an interesting perspective. Now, of course, this is a complex, complex um, question here because that's not exactly religious persecution. That's just a regulatory state. And we all know whether you're trying to start a business or <laughs> you want to uh, do a procession through the streets of Western Sydney or you want to start a new church or whatever, there are plenty of regulations to go through. But of course, those regulations can be used. And I think in sometimes are used <laughs> in ways that if not, I, don't, I wouldn't say they qualify as persecution. I think at this stage, we're dealing largely with ignorance. There's a complete misunderstanding of what churches are because we now have people in government who have no experience of church. And perhaps to partly answer my earlier perplexity <laughs> about why this fear is growing, I guess ignorance is always susceptible to leading to fear because we fear what we don't know. Uh, this happens on the reverse as well, just to bring Islam back in. So if you don't know a lot about Islam, you don't know Muslims, you've never been to a Muslim majority country, well, then your, your perception of Islam is going to be shaped by the kind of stories you read on the news, which are usually going to be some guy blows himself up and kills a bunch of people or plows a vehicle into a crowd of uh, civilians in Paris or Vienna. So you're, you're then going to be uh, pretty fearful of Muslims, but the actual um, percentage of Muslims, at least in Western, you know, a place like Australia, who are a threat is proportionally very, very small. I've traveled all around the Muslim world from Afghanistan to Turkey. And, um, you know, once you interact with a large section of Muslims, you just realize they're normal um, people and there's great variety, which is not to say there isn't a, a threat. Clearly, um, there is. The point is, uh, we can end up fearing what we don't know. We might end it there, Dr. Cole. Uh, your podcast is called Political Animals and is available on people's favourite podcast app. Dr. Cole, thank you very much indeed for being with me today on Talking Freely. Thanks for the opportunity, Rowan. I really enjoyed it. That's it for our latest episode of Talking Freely. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do so through our website, www.freedomforfaith.org.au. Freedom for Faith exists through the generous donations of individuals and organisations across Australia. If you'd like to financially partner with us, you can do so through our website.